you could break down the question of how film narrative is understood into the in two components. One is, are there rules that tell us how we should connect things? So like if we see one shot and one shot, we think like, oh, there's some kind of rule of time. They should be next to each other. Some kind of rule of space. They should be proximal. Another question is, what does it leave you, the audience member, with at the end of all that? So is there some kind of um, mental representation of a space that gets built up? Or are you just kind of left with a bunch of pairwise connected scenes? Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 52. And this is indeed a great episode Though, no thanks to me, because I bungled it on a number of levels. The first is the audio, where I don't quite know what happened. But more importantly, this is the, the second episode in which I tried to use a green screen. And it was a major fail, though you will have noticed that if you're watching on YouTube and you saw the, the pre-clip or the pre-roll. So I am embarrassed, uh, mainly for Gabe's sake, that he has to be part of this. But at any rate, uh, Gabe is great. Gabriel Greenberg, my guest, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of California, Los Angeles, and is currently a visiting professor at Stanford. So Gabe works widely across the philosophy of mind. But as you'll hear, there are maybe two areas or zones of philosophy of mind, and zone is certainly not canonical jargon, but there's consciousness on the one hand, there's representation on the other, and Gabe works mainly in the representation camp. And in this conversation, we talk about roughly three things. I'd say we talk about this divide between consciousness and representation in the philosophy of mind. And then we talk about the distinction between symbols, icons, and indexicals, though we don't talk about indexicals much. It's mainly symbols and icons, and this distinction was, I believe, introduced by Peirce. But in today's conversation, given what Gabe works on, we talk about what symbols and icons are and how our brain interprets them. Then, lastly, we talk about something that was very, very fun for me. We talk about the philosophy of film and cognitive science and how the brain takes these sort of discrete snippets of images, moving images from different viewpoints, different times with different sounds and stitches them together in our minds into a coherent whole. So there are also two corrections that I have to make, one on my behalf, which is while we were talking about this, I said that my best friend's dad, Graham, oh, well, Graham's not my best friend's dad, Graham's my best friend, in an earlier episode, he was on an earlier episode, but anyway, in this episode, what I said was that at one of his birthday parties, his sleepover birthday parties, when we were like five years old, his dad let us watch Terminator 2 and Enter the Dragon, and that's probably not true. We were probably like eight or nine, so that is my, my correction, and then Gabe mentioned in this episode that he curated a show of comic book artists after high school, but it was in fact, after uh, graduating his undergrad at Yale. Then the last thing that I'd like to say 
I, I never do these call to actions, but I need to remind myself to do them more. So follow me, follow the show rather on Spotify, on Apple, on YouTube, wherever you're watching, leave a comment or a like, please geeselings. This is very helpful. I'm also on Twitter at Robinson Earhart now and following me there would also be extremely helpful. And I also stream on Twitch every morning. The show is called Robinson Eats. I guess it's my second show, but I think my account is Robinson Earhart. And I eat a pint of ice cream. Uh, I have that for breakfast every day, a different pint. I think I'm at 150 episodes and 150 different pints, roughly. But I've been doing this for a couple of years without streaming it. So I have probably had like seven or 800 different pints of ice cream. And if that isn't interesting to you, then I don't know what is. Uh, so yeah, I'd like to talk about anything, largely food though, but happy to talk about philosophy. So follow me there. And now without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed talking with Gabe. So you told me that at some point, and I don't remember whether you said it, you were in high school or you were in college, that you organized, maybe it was a, a conference or a convention or something about comics or revolving around comics. What what was that about? <laughs> Good memory. Uh, I think I was right between high school and college. So I think it was the summer between um, high school and college. And I curated a show of Vermont comic artists uh, at the local art museum in the town where I grew up. Um, okay, that's and, awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It, there was some, I think the most famous person in it was, um, uh, uh, what's his name, who did Sin City? Frank. Frank Miller. Yeah, Frank um, Miller. Who's actually a Vermonter, believe it or oh, not. Oh, yeah, that's a huge get. <laughs> It was a huge get, and I was just a kid, and I like I really had to convince them to hand over some of his original art, and his publicist was not very impressed with me, so it took some contacts to be able. Oh, that's to. pretty crazy, though. As a high schooler, were you so comics have always been huge for you? Um, I've always been into comics. Um, yeah, when I was a kid, I collected Ghost Rider. Okay, I like I had this great like Ghost Rider saber tooth. Punisher, Spider-Man, crossover. It was the only like collectible comic I ever had and I always kept it in a nice like little folio. In the in the like plastic cases. Yeah, I had uh -huh. those plastic cases with the boards and everything. Mm -hmm. um, at some point then I like kind of gave that up and got more interested in art comics and then I you know continued I was an art major in college and so yeah. um a bunch of the stuff I made was comics for that. Uh my house is still full of comics, so continues. Yeah, well, that's actually what I was going to ask next, which was that at Yale you graduated doing philosophy and art, and so it wasn't art history then; it was actually doing the art. Yeah, it was. It was definitely doing the art. That's what I was excited about, um, and the, my work was sort of a little bit bifurcated. There was some that was like art capital a that was supposed to look like um the art we were trained to do and then the other half was comics and, and the art you were trained to do was 
like fine painting, like that sort of thing? You know, I was I couldn't quite get myself into painting. I mean, I took classes and everything. It was more a little more kind of conceptual art um, on paper, which I think was pretty. Um, that was what was cool to do at that time was things that had that kind of conceptual conceptual aspect to it. Okay. Uh, like trying to think of any kind of good examples. You know, like that had um, a time lapse map of um, territories controlled by indigenous Americans over time. So like, you know, first looked like the whole US and then got smaller and smaller in 50 year increments. Mm -hmm. That kind of, you know, it's sort of a little bit uh, concepty, diagrammy, a little bit art, um, a little bit political statement that that I think, I'm not sure any of it was particularly good, but it was very much in um, keeping with what was what was cool to do at that time. Okay. And then were the comics more like Marvel or Frank Miller or Watchmen or comedy comics? No, it wasn't really any of those. They're more in this like kind of, um, you know, like indie comics in style. So it was like a really dense textures, lots of lines. Um, and I wonder what I could compare it to that would be um, illuminating. You know, I was really inspired by Mouse, that Art Spiegelman. Oh, comic. yeah, I love Mouse. That was, um, you know, and things in, in, that, in that genre. The reason that, I mean, I'm asking all of these questions is because of what your philosophical work is. And I know that somehow it's related to this and we'll get back, we'll get to that eventually. But when you were in college then, so you did the art on the one side and then you also did philosophy and was it from the get go philosophy of mind? Um, or did that come more at Rutgers in grad school? I think from the get go, well, it wasn't, I, I went into college, um, really interested in um east asian philosophy and spirituality like really interested in taoist philosophy i you know read the bhagavad-gita and was really fascinated by that and i thought that i might study chinese philosophy and um then i took some classes in chinese philosophy and it was very historical and, you know, scholarly mm -hmm. <laughs> that I was not prepared for. Yeah. And I was like, this isn't quite what I was looking for. I took some analytic philosophy classes and then that, that, um, hooked me much more. So there, I did get, um, pretty excited about philosophy of mind early, but the thing that then really captivated me in college was, um, metaphysics. Oh, and, really? Okay. Uh, really? In, uh, um, Michael De La Roca, who's at Yale, is like, you know, he has this big picture kind of early modern style of metaphysics and likes to think about principles of sufficient reason. And I was just captivated by all that stuff, you know, uh, possible worlds, um, is identity necessary, um, the, the metaphysics of worlds, uh, analogies between worlds and times, that was all the 
the things that were really like forefront of my mind. Um, some of the, some questions about consciousness, um, like Kripke topics. Yeah. Yeah. Topics. And, uh, I was, I, even though I was doing art and philosophy, I was kind of disdainful of philosophy about art. Like the more, the aesthetic side of things. Yeah. I mean, I think whenever people hear that you're do that you're a philosophy and art double major, they just assume that the philosophy you're doing is the philosophy of art, which yeah. at the time I think, yeah, meant aesthetics. And I just, it felt so superficial compared to questions about the nature of time and possibility. So I always sort of imagined the relationship the other way around. Like if the art was about something, it was maybe about some philosophical themes, but, um, I didn't want the philosophy to be corrupted by being about art. And was it then after Yale at Rutgers, because I know your thesis was on semiotics. So you moved toward representation at some point, presumably then it was when you were at Rutgers. Yeah. I went into, I went to Rutgers thinking I would do modal metaphysics and then the Kripke stuff or Lewis stuff or something. Yeah. Kripke Lewis stuff. And then slowly started taking some, um, philosophy of language and linguistics classes. So it's like, you know, from the metaphysics of modality into the language of modality and the logic of modality. And, um, I think there was a, that's probably what I would have worked on. And, you know, I wrote a paper on conditionals that I, I got, you know, like many people just got obsessed with conditionals. That's like a, a black hole you can disappear into and never come out of. Yeah. I read Dorothy Edgington's paper on conditionals and that was more than enough conditionals for me. Right. So you, you can kind of read that paper and have two feelings. One is like, this is overwhelming or, huh, this is really complicated. I better read a bunch more in order okay. to yeah. my, my, some control over this. Um, but it, it was actually the linguistics that and led me back to comics and stuff because I took this graduate seminar with, um, Roger Schwartzchild, who's, a uh, he was a professor in linguistics. Um, and it was a topics class. So we took, I, there was, you know, one topic was count nouns and mass nouns, another topic was like aspect and none of the topics were really, they weren't clicking for me. I didn't want to write a term paper on count nouns and mass nouns. So I asked him at the time, um, it had it occurred to me that there was like something compositional about comic books. So specifically comic book balloons. So if you have like, um, um, well, you could do it a couple ways, but first, like, you know, you know, the, what I'm talking about, the, the speech balloon yeah. comics. Yeah. Yeah. So if you hold fix the words and you could either make it a ra a, a smooth circular speech balloon, or you could change it and make it the cloudy thought balloon. Yeah. So that's kind of compositional because it's the same content, but the, um, whether it's a thought or a speech gets changed compositionally. 
Yeah. I thought like, oh, this is like a nice, simple observation. Like I can put this into a, a term paper. If you have it spiky edges and it's yelling, you know, there's a few different yeah, yeah, yeah. limitations. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's uh, neat. Really neat. Roger said like, okay, you can write on that. So then I, I started working on it and I realized there was something missing in my, the analysis because, um, the key thing about the balloon is that it, it's attached to a person. There's like a tail on the balloon. Um, so if you're going to be compositional, I needed to account for how the tail worked. So I was like, okay, so now the tail indicates who's saying, like it points to them. Um, but then what it's really doing is pointing into a picture. So I thought, uh, okay, so I need some kind of semantics for the picture. And then I can link that up with the tail and then I can have my whole analysis and it'll work smoothly. Uh, so I went to my advisor at the time, which was Matthew Stone, who's a computer scientist. And I was like, Matthew, um, I need something on semantics of pictures so that I can finish this project for this term paper. And he was like, well, there isn't really a semantics for pictures. So then I was like, okay, maybe I have to do a little semantics for pictures. So I started trying to solve that problem for the term paper. And I quickly realized that that problem was way, way, way more hard than the <laughs> analysis of the speech balloons. And, uh, that more or less became my, my, um, dissertation project. Okay. Now that you already like have me hooked that, <laughs> that is so cool. I, I mean, this is why we chose to do philosophy because we can think about these things that you could you can write papers on composition and and speech bubbles thought bubbles and spiky spiky yellow bubbles yeah. now <laughs> so we'll get into the the signs and the pictures and the semantics of those but first more more broadly when we had our, our first conversation and you told me that you did the philosophy of mind. I was like, Oh yeah. Consciousness. So interesting. Let's talk about that. And then you told me, well, actually there are two, well, there is one, one division, but two, maybe broad categories within philosophy of mind. Uh, you said on the one hand that there's consciousness on the other hand, there's representation. And I mean, maybe there are some things that don't fit, neatly in there, like free will or what have you, uh, that might fit into the philosophy of mind category. But most people have a, a pretty decent grasp, general audience of what they don't know what consciousness is, but they might, they know what, what we might ask about it. Maybe yeah. uh, on the other hand, I don't think that non-philosophers encounter representation in the same way that we do. So I thought maybe because some of the people listening won't all be philosophers or philosophers of mind, you could tell me broadly, philosophically speaking, what you have in mind when you're talking about a representation. Yeah. Um, good question. Uh, so I think the, Probably the easiest starting point for representation is to think about um, public signs. So by that, I mean words, sentences, 
pictures, diagrams. So things we use to mean. Um, and I think those are all kind of vivid cases of representation. Like they're all objects that are about things other than themselves. So it's like, um, if I say, um, it's quite cold out, you know, then my words have a certain kind of structure and sound and take up a certain amount of time and so on. But none of those features really are what it's about. It's about what it's like outside in the temperature. And similarly, you know, a picture of a tree might be, it has certain properties itself. It's like black and white and has lines and certain dimensions, but that's not what it's about. It's about a tree and a certain scene that the tree is in. Um, so I think representations are all those things that kind of display that property. They're, they're, there's a certain kind of object or sometimes called a vehicle on one hand, and then there's the stuff it's about, its content on the other. Um, those I think are most like intuitive um, examples of representations. And then in philosophy of mind, people, um, well, the kind of people you're talking about, including myself, are thinking, um, yeah, those, we also have those on the inside. We also have those in our minds. And so uh, when we're doing these mental activities like thinking or imagining or seeing, we're actually engaging mental representations. So the, mm -hmm. the mental counterpart of words and pictures, um, whatever they are. So I, I read in high school, though, to use the word red might be charitable, okay. Daniel Dennett's Consciousness Explained. Okay. Yeah. And one thing that I did get out of it was, I think he, he invited you to imagine a purple cow. And then he asked, well, where is that? I mean, you're not, there is no purple cow in your brain, even though you, you, you have the sense that you're experience, experiencing it or seeing it. And I think the phrase that he uses that he's attacking with this idea is that of the Cartesian theater. And is this this idea more on the consciousness side, but maybe a, a, a blending of the representation and the consciousness side with regard to meaning and representation. Yeah, I might touch on both in a way. Okay. Um, I mean, so I don't remember the details of the Dennett discussion, but the point he's making there there's kind of two ways you might take that point. One is um, just a plea for representations. So you could say like, you know, I'm thinking of a purple cow, but there's no actual purple cow inside of me. Therefore, there must be some vehicle inside of me that's about the purple cow. Mm -hmm. um, uh, some kind of, you know, it's like, well, th there must be a representation because the real thing isn't there. Um, But there's another way of taking the point, which is um, an argument against um, taking our familiar kinds of public representations too seriously. Um, so uh, you might think, 
well, I'm thinking of a purple cow, therefore there must be a picture of a purple cow inside of me. Um, and that's something you might also think doesn't follow automatically. Um, and this is, this is a little more at that intersection of representation and, and, and consciousness, because mm -hmm. whatever representation is inside of me certainly feels phenomenologically like looking at a purple cap. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't expect when we open up the brain to find a, like a picture of a purple cow. Okay. I mean, and at least I, I, I'll say just one more thing, which is like, that's the um, kind of traditional philosophical and cognitive scientific line on the whole thing. Um, and I think Locke thought that we had little pictures in our brains and that helped us um, represent external objects. And people for a long time thought that Locke was so foolish to have thought that. But in the last, uh, you know, 30 years or so, people have become more and more aware of these findings in neuroscience that, that the um, organization of the brain actually does have a kind of picture-like quality for certain parts of the brain, like the visual parts of the brain. So I actually think it, in a way, I mean, it's not plausible that the inside of your brain turns purple when you're thinking of a purple cow, mm -hmm. but there may really be something that is exactly like a picture of a cow in your brain, like a cow shaped portion of your brain. Um, and I think how to interpret that is kind of controversial, but for my money, I think that, yeah, there might really be pictures inside your brain. And so the, the, um, what was once thought so foolish might actually turn out to be right. Huh. Well, you gestured at another of the ground laying questions I had in mind, which was, as a philosopher of mind, what sort of dialogue or do you have dialogue with scientists and thinkers in other disciplines? Uh, so you mentioned neuroscientists, but are there other disciplines with which your work intersects? Yeah, I would say that uh, learning about neuroscience is something I'm doing now and just engaging with now. So it's a bit, all been new to me. Um, the most deep engagement I've had has been with linguistics. Okay. And so that's really where my work has come from is in graduate school, it was sort of like a healthy blend of philosophy, computer science, and linguistics. And then... I would say my interlocutors have been as much linguists as philosophers and um, exploring how we could do something analogous to linguistics for non-linguistic representations. Um, and it sounded like one of your advisors was a computer scientist as well. Yeah, he's a computer scientist and a, and a, and a linguist. So um, okay. that that's really, I've had one foot in there for a long time and um, getting to learning about um, empirical psychology and, and especially neuroscience is relatively recent for me. I didn't really get into philosophy of mind until I started my job and was out of graduate school. Well, okay. Bef last question before we get into your research and you probably, you touched on some of these things in your explanation or description of what representations are 
Yeah. But quite generally, what are some of the philosophical questions that are asked about representations? Because I'm sure that your work doesn't touch on all of them. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess the, um, all of the most intriguing philosophical questions, I think, come from the fact of this aboutness property that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And um, right away, you see that it, it, whatever aboutness is, it's not one of your traditional physical properties. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, like it's not you if. Um, you know, if, if I like look at the little written word Robinson at the bottom of the screen and mm -hmm. I think, okay, that's a name for you. Um, but what really is the connection between the little writing at the bottom of the screen and you, it, there's not some kind of, um, like physical link that I could yeah. you know, detect between you and that name. And so, um, that just, I think that opens up a huge can of philosophical worms. Is, yeah, is certainly. Yeah, certainly within. I mean, the philosophy of language reference is a huge deal. I actually, it's in the archives right now. It'll come out at some point. But I did a a three hour episode with Richard Kimberly Heck of Brown on just the reference relation. So that that'll come out eventually. But That's is a there a <laughs> yeah real a real deep dive? Is there a philosophy of mind sort of correlate or um, angle to the question? Because we talked about it from a, a philosophy of language perspective. I mean, starting with uh, Zin and Bedeutung, so Frege. Yeah, there is. So, I mean, in some ways you could think of reference as also a philosophy of mind problem because presumably we have mental terms that refer. Um, but there's a generalization of it, which is just other kinds of content. So this is sometimes called the problem of intentionality. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, where intentionality is a technical term from Brentano that means just roughly like aboutness directed at something. And so um, you could ask analogous questions for that arise for reference for other kinds of content. So again, if, if I'm sitting here um, thinking about what I had for breakfast, you know, what is the connection between, say, my current physical state, including my brain state and the waffles that I had for breakfast? Um, how did, how, what about me makes it the case that I'm thinking about those? And the, in a way, I think that question is so big and mysterious. The, the fact that it's such a big and mysterious question is what sets it right up there next to consciousness. Like if you're feel like lots of these problems in philosophy of mind get animated by a background commitment to naturalism. So mm -hmm. if you're not a naturalist, you don't kind of feel a pressure to fit everything into a certain kind of picture. You might just say like, well, there's consciousness and then there's the physical world. There's, you know, the contents of your thoughts and keep adding furniture to your mental ontology or to, sorry, to your metaphysical ontology. But if you are some flavor of naturalist, you want to be like, somehow these things all have to be explicable in some way in 
the terms of the natural sciences or the physical world. And now that starts seeming very difficult and mysterious. And then the problem of intentionality doesn't sound as difficult to solve as the problems of consciousness, but they're certainly in the same league and um, you could devote a, a lifetime to them. Um, so I think that's a, like a big picture question. And in a way, if you don't have a sketch of how you might go about that answer, then your naturalism is just a, a, a an IOU. It's like a commitment without any follow through. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you asked, are there other kind of big picture questions about representation? And I think, yeah, there's lots. So, I mean, we might also ask about the nature of content. Um, so content, what is a, a content? Like there's somehow, ab there, uh, they seem to be like abstract objects, if you will, or abstractions of some kind but they characterize the world in some way. So they have some descriptive um, element. Is and, content, are you using that sort of synonymously with aboutness or? Um, approximately synonymously. I mean, I think maybe you can only get so far with aboutness talk. And so at some point you need to systemize, systematize your talk. And so then you, yeah. you reach for content. Um, mm -hmm. And, it, you, know, you know, then we could talk about the content of your thoughts, the content of your images, the content of your, um, your command, your public commands, like what you tell people to do, but also the motor commands that you might, you know, tell your body what to do. And all these things we might, broadly put under the, the heading of content. And so just understanding what kinds of contents they are and what they are, that I would say that's an, another major issue in this, in the representation area. Okay. Well, I'm ready to, to turn to your work. Okay. <laughs> and I like talking, you have, it's fun. Sorry. I said, I enjoy talking about these big picture stuff. This is, these are fun questions to engage with. Okay, good, good. Um, so you have a paper on the iconic symbolic spectrum. And maybe before we, I mean, it comes before spectrum. I, I hadn't encountered this before that there, there was really, well, I never thought about there being a distinction between icons and symbols, but what is, what's the difference? What's an icon and what's a, so what are the poles of our spectrum before we talk about what lies between them? Yeah. Um, okay. So the terms, uh, were coined by, uh, Charles Sanders purse at the end of the 19th century. Icon and symbol. He has both of them. Indeed. Yeah. Oh, wow. He, <laughs> that, and, that, those are big words. I mean, I think symbol has a kind of more ancient, um, etymology. Mm -hmm. He introduced the opposition. In fact, he has this okay. three-way distinction, um, icon, symbol, and index. Okay. Um, and so just to give you just intuitive, vivid cases, um, symbols are supposed to be things like words or sentences or, um, you know, what we call symbols in mathematics, like the plus symbol. Yeah. Um, icons are things that have a picture-like quality or a diagram-like quality. So the picture of the tree or a Cartesian graph or a Venn diagram, those would be icons. Mm -hmm. um, 
And uh, Perth, you know, also had this idea to distinguish those from indexes or indexicals. So um, for him, like the pointed finger or a weather vane were, were these paradigms of indexes, things that sort of had some kind of grounding in the physical world. Uh, their meaning was grounded in their huh. physical existence. Very um, neat. So, I mean, it, it's a, it's an intuitive distinction. And then I think, um, there's been a lot of debate about whether we could make good on it, mm -hmm. but the, um, the, the thing that has always made me feel like, yeah, it's, it's worth exploring this, um, was not what her said. So, um, but it was actually what another, a, con a, a rough contemporary, uh, Saussure had to say about these things. So Ferdinand. Ferdinand, yeah. Okay. Um, and what a these nice are names name. that are not part of the analytic philosophy canon, but they are definitely part of the intellectual canon. Um, Saussure is famous for saying that the, the linguistic sign is arbitrary. Yeah. And, uh, so he says, like, the, the connection between the word and the thing that it means is arbitrary. And mm -hmm. there's no inner connection between them. So names are a great example like so going back to robinson like um you know though there's the name robinson then there's you and though you may feel like that name really fits you very well presumably a different name would have worked um also mm -hmm. but like you know if you really think about the shape of the name it has a big r and the, like it finishes with an n like is there anything in you that matches those not really um and you contrast that with a picture where um, it doesn't seem like the connection between say like a picture of a tree and a particular tree that it's of is arbitrary. Like the, it's the shape of the tree, which makes it that picture, you know, which makes, which gives it that content. Um, and if you changed the lines around, it wouldn't be as good a match for that content. So that's always seemed to me like, well, there's something really deep going on there. That's like a really fundamental contrast in these two ways of representing. To make sure that I have it right. So uh, on the one hand, you have a sign, like you, you mentioned plus, and it represents the plus, the addition function. And uh, that's how we use it canonically, but we might as well have used like the minus symbol or anything else to mean, uh, to indicate the plus function. And then I don't know. So like I have an Apple computer, uh, the Apple is the icon and well, I guess maybe that's because it represents a computer company. So maybe that's not that's a, a right. slightly tricky case. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll pick a different, at, if I'm at the grocery store and I see like the, an apple, I would assume that it's going to represent like the apple section of the grocery store. It would be weird if, if there were a pair there and that's where the apples were. Um, maybe this is like a, a category mistake. Oh, it is a category mistake, but in onomatopoeia, like the, the sound you make to say the word connects to the, the sound of the object, I guess that, or the action that you're describing. But would you say, I mean, you might as well say there's like a, some sort of onomatopoeic poetic flavor between the icon and the thing that's represented. 
So onomatopoeia, I think, is actually a really interesting case. Um, oh, really? Oh, cool. Yeah, and it's I I don't think it's um, straightforward. So I th traditionally people have described it exactly the way you just did, which is they think, well, it's an iconic word of some kind, um, where it's somehow it, it has some resemblance to the thing that it represents. So. Um, uh, there's a lot of sound ones, so crash, smash, a lot of water ones, drip, flush. All of these are supposed to be unmonopoetic. Um, and I don't think that that traditional analysis is exactly right. Um, so I, I don't deny that there's they have this kind of iconic resonance. Um, but, uh, you know, on further kind of consideration, I think they really work like words. So um, like other words that are arbitrary. And so, you know, the thing that I sort of invite you to think about is um, take, um, I don't know if this case is resonant for you, but it's a little easy to work with. Um, the bird called a cuckoo. Mm -hmm. So it's supposed to be an onomatopoetic um, word. And Presumably, it was invented to to sound a bit like the bird. Mm -hmm. um, the thing is that if you want to know what that word means, I don't think you need to really look at its shape. You need to consult the dictionary, and the dictionary will tell you it's a certain kind of bird. And in that case, the the connection between the word and the thing it means is exactly like any other arbitrary yeah whereas if you look at the icon of the apple you don't need to look up in a dictionary what it means no and like with cuckoo you don't have to like you don't have to like say like okay that word sounds that way now what would sound that way and kind of work backwards um you just and i think you can do these kind of kripke style thought experiments like um, it might turn out that all cuckoos actually screech and that just historically we always misheard them or there was some <laughs> accident and it would still be that natural kind that it was naming, even though it was not the, the, the iconic aspect was wrong. Um, the Kripke fan comes out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's never, you know, that far away. Yeah. So, um, in a way I think onomatopoiesis is it's iconicity it's it's symbolism in iconicity's clothes so it superficially looks like an iconic representation but it actually works uh the way the plus symbol works i just i had to when you said onomatopoiesis i had to look it up and <laughs> because i want to see what the what the etymology yeah. is of oh yeah i have okay. no idea actually yeah, okay. It sounds like it uh, might itself be an onomatopoetic term. Onomatopoiesis. Etymology. Okay. Late 16th century via late Latin from Greek, onomatopoeia, word making. From onoma, which is name, plus poios, which is making. Hmm. Interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. There, I would say that there's, there's a broader class of kind of sound effects in language. There's not that many of them in, in English, 
that are work a bit more like you're saying. So, you know, uh, where you might say in some languages, like it's raining, blip, 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 blip. And, but those, oh, really? those blip, blip, blips are, are built into, there's like a grammatical way to, to make those sounds. And those have more the quality of little pictures that are inserted into the linguistic stream. Okay. Mm, interesting. Then, no, that's very cool. Okay. So we've then talked about signs. We've talked about icons. I think I have them clear. Uh, we, I guess we can leave indexes out of it because this isn't the, you, your paper isn't on the iconic symbolic uh, index plane. No, uh, it's just it's just the spectrum. So what what is the spectrum then? Um, if, well, I'm thinking about an efficient way to answer that question. Yeah, because obviously it's, a, it's like a 30 page paper. Right. Okay, so. Let me say, I'm going I'm gonna do that annoying philosopher thing where you start off by saying one might think and then you go to. Oh, that's not annoying for, <laughs> for my purposes. No, that's good. Um, I think the, what I have to say in answer to your question might make a little more sense in the context of how people have, have approached this question. Oh yeah, please. So, um, I, when you look at the exemplars of iconicity and symbolism, um, there's some very like vivid, also relatively superficial distinctions between them. So. Icons like pictures and diagrams tend to be two dimensional and sentences tend to be linear. Um, and icons tend to be continuous or something approaching continuous. Um, whereas sentences and words tend to have small finite numbers of discrete parts. So you, you kind of start seeing some structural differences between them. And you might suspect that the real difference between these is that they're just different um, ways of using the page or using the sound space, like different kind of formats. And um, I think that's a, a good start, but as you start to turn through cases, you realize that doesn't quite cut things the way we want to, to intuitively cut them. So on one hand, there are all kinds of digital pictures um, which seem to have be made of discrete parts, but they're definitely pictures. Um, there are timelines, which are perfectly linear, but they are also clearly iconic, not symbolic. Um, and then there are all these logical diagrams. So Venn diagrams, which have many, have their, they have finitely many discrete parts and they even convey logical content. Um, but they seem like they're diagrams and they're not sentences. Mm -hmm. um, so what at first seems, you know, like a superficial distinction of maybe structure. Now we, we start feeling uneasy with that, that way of dividing things up. Um, and I think the history of the topic has been people exploring more and more rich notions of structure. So, you know, a, a popular one now is maybe sentences are things that 
um, have a hierarchical structure, a kind of tree-like structure, um, whereas um, icons have something more like a um, topological structure or metric structure. Um, and maybe something along those lines is right, but you know, you can you can start thinking of tricky cases like what about a directed graph? Often those have a kind of tree-like structure. Um, and maybe we could invent a new kind of language that really felt symbolic, but took some metric relations into account. I'm thinking of what was that movie contact? Contact. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, that, that's my permanent headspace is to try to think if I were a Martian and I landed here in on earth and saw all of these beings communicating with each other. Um, what sense could we make of, of their systems of communication? Hmm. Um, so, um, my thought in that, um, in the paper is perhaps what distinguishes the iconic and symbolic isn't really something that's visible on the surface. Um, it, and it has more to do with the underlying rules that we use to interpret them. And yeah, yeah. Uh, just to interject, I mean, yeah, if you see the the plus function on the one or the plus sign on the one hand and an Apple icon on the other, if you just drop down from Mars, there's no real difference between them. They're both like pictorial in some sense, but they clearly for us relate to their content very differently. Yeah, absolutely. And you could imagine just the very same set of marks being used in really different ways. So, um, you might sure. no the plus sign is used i mean i was just talking about this with jody azuni uh this is actually what i was saying so abraham frankel of zermelo frankel set theory mm -hmm. he said that what distinguishes literature and mathematics is that in literature you'll use many words for one different thing i mean you can describe a flower a thousand ways but in mathematics you use one word for a, a, like a ton of different things and it just it's really ambiguous it's really confusing so i mean the plus function i mean we, we're familiar with it uh just from ordinary arithmetic but it means different things in different groups different different contexts sure uh, yeah um but i was even imagining i mean maybe it's just an extension of that point where um we imagine a mark like you know that mark yeah what looks like the plus sign and in one context um that might be a picture like it might be or or a diagram like you know you might be like well, what's the relationship between these two roads and i draw you know two yeah. intersecting perpendicular lines and then um another case i want to indicate the plus function we have the same <laughs> um so in that case um it's you know pretty clear the difference is not like something about the structure mm -hmm. and you know, my thought is it has more to do with how we take it. So yeah. um, when we look uh, but, at- But there, there does seem to be, that does happen with icons too, a little bit. I mean, just like with the apple in the one context, it means a fruit, but in this context, it means the computer company. Yeah, I mean, in the latter case, I'm not sure. I mean, it's there's this other, there's a colloquial use of icon, which is the icons on our computers and phone and mm -hmm. brand icons, which is maybe to contrast with the philosophical use of iconic representation. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, in some ways the, the little Apple logo, um, is just like the example of the plus that I just gave, because in one case, it's a symbol for this company. Um, in the other case, it's a picture of a kind of fruit. Um, but I mean, I think the question to ask is what is that difference in those two cases? Um, and the deflationary thing to say would be, well, it's just ambiguous. So, you know, like the word bank in the dictionary, um, has different meanings and you just look them up differently. But I, I think the difference goes deeper than that. It's, um, in one use of plus to mean the plus function, uh, sorry, plus to mean, we don't really have good language for this, but one use of the cross to mean the addition function. Mm -hmm. um, that's a case where you kind of look up cross in a mental dictionary or a actual dictionary, and it, it just tells you addition function. Um, in the case of using the, the cross to be say a map of two roads, then I don't think there's any dictionary you look it up in. It tells you, no, you need to apply a general schematic, um, interpretive rule here. Um, where the lines indicate roads and the positions of the lines indicate the positions of roads. So there's these really kind of two different ways of reading a sign or two different kinds of rules you might use for reading a sign, um, where one rule is dictionary-like, you know, it has entries for the different signs and entries for what they mean. And then the other kind of, that's a symbolic kind of rules. And then the other kinds of rules, the iconic rules are, um, like general schemas. They say like, give me any configuration of lines and I'll tell you how to map those back onto what it says about the world. Um, so I think that's probably what is going on in this iconic symbolic distinction. And it really has to do with two kinds of rule and the stuff about is it linear or digital or continuous? Those are sort of superficial side effects of the, of the use of these different kinds of rules in communication. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, you, you had asked me what's, you know, what's in the middle between the edges of the spectrum. And I think once we start mapping out these different kinds of rule and their structural differences, then we could start looking in between sort of thing like oh well what if i kind of blended aspects of general schemas with itemized rules then i could get something that was like a bit of a hybrid of iconic and symbolic representation i think you find all kinds of cases that are exactly like that can we talk about one case oh yeah um let's see what are some i think my favorite case are uh, stylized pictures. Okay. Um, so um, stylized pictures are pictures that they're, they recognizably look like pictures. They describe a kind of visual space and they have a viewpoint, but the things in them seem to be drawn following a kind of fixed schema. Um, you know, when you're first learning to draw, I don't know if you remember this, but it's like people show you how to draw an X. So it's like mm -hmm. you want to draw a house. 
here's how you draw a house. Two lines here, two lines here, chimney here, window here. You've got a house. Mm -hmm. And um, similar, like how to draw a person. Well, in the like stick figure way of doing it, like there's a big circle for the head and then you have a line for the torso and certain kind of lines for the legs. Those kinds of rules are not very iconic because they don't tell you like, look at a house and take its projection or look at a person and copy its form. They're like, for any person, no matter what their shape is, use this schema, circle, line, 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 line. Um, and I think, uh, so take stick figure drawing, like, you know, um, you familiar with the um, web comic XKCD? Nope. Nope, I'm not. It's like popular in nerd culture. Um, it's got these like little, little stick figures talking to each other all the time. Those stick, like stick figure drawings in general, or the kind of bubble head drawings you see um, at crosswalk signs or in public signage, those seem like a case of stylized images and they're kind of in between, I think, icon and symbol. So on one hand, the position of the body might indicate the position of the body you're representing. So if they've got, you know, one stick arm up, you think the person represented has their arm up like that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it's like a black dot floating above uh, a line. And that just seems like a completely arbitrary stipulation. Like we're going to draw people this way. Uh, yeah. And that seems like a really distinctive blend of arbitrary stipulation and natural connection to the content, um, which is characteristic of, of these rules that kind of use both like visual projection and arbitrary, um, almost dictionary like entries. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, what's fascinating is most art before the Renaissance was this kind of art was stylized imagery. So, uh, from our modern perspective where we're have such like good visual and symbolic technology, we think that um, we imagine there's these like pure forms, like there's photography on one side and mathematical symbols on the other. And then we have to think really hard about how to blend them. Um, but in human evolution and cultural evolution, I think it was just the opposite. Like the natural thing for people to do is to start in the middle where they've got these, from our perspective, like crazy hybrids of, of, um, iconic and symbolic elements. And I think it's a kind of deep question about human communication. Why hybrid is always the way we like default to, um, we're almost never prefer to use a single modality to express ourselves. Hmm. No, this is by the way, I mean, we've got some visual and, and symbolic communication going on. So, mm -hmm. This is all super cool, by the way. <laughs> this is all really cool. I mean, no offense to Ricky Heck, but I mean, this is, I mean, much cooler than, than just, than, uh, Frege. I, I, well, I really like Frege's philosophy of math, but, uh, I, I mean, and we'll be okay with you uh, making that, that assessment of coolness. 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good. Now, uh, so, so something that's a big project of your paper, it's a technical term uh, that maybe you could elucidate a bit, but a big part of the paper is giving what's called uh, a semantics mm-hmm. for symbols or a semantics for icons. And before we talk about what, the, what those might be in particular, what does it mean to give a semantics for symbols? Like what would it mean to give a semantics for the plus sign? Yeah. So semantics, as I'm using the term, is um, something that came out of linguistics and linguistic philosophy. And it's, um, you know, there's a field of semantics within linguistics. And roughly, it's the sort of scientific study of meaning. And semanticists try to articulate um, rules that, that associate um, particular terms with meanings and what kind of gets interesting and technical about the topic is on, uh, for, for language, the assumption that you could explain the meaning of complex holes in terms of the meanings of their simple parts. So you take, um, um, example, like, um, Of course, I can never think of examples right on the tip. <laughs> um, uh, if I say um, uh, the candle burned, um, then you've got um, this um, word burned, which really seems to have two components. It has this like this root verb burn and then this suffix ed. And the suffix is supposed to tell you something about time. And the other one is supposed to tell you something about the activity. And if you put them together, then you get the meaning that the activity happened in the past. Um, Yeah. And so the study of semantics is a way of trying to systematize that. Like, could we take a language, figure out the meanings for all of its kind of simplest parts and articulate um, rules for how the parts are supposed to combine to build up to explain the meanings of whole complexes? And um, it's a sort of started off as a paper and pencil kind of activity, and now you know could also be done computationally. Um, but I think the motivating idea behind it is to uncover the rules that we ourselves are using when we're interpreting um, linguistic expressions. Um, and you know, in a way, it's surprising if you aren't familiar with um, linguistics, it can be surprising to find out that there's a science of meaning. Meaning seems like the kind of thing that shouldn't be. Elude science. Yeah. Um, And perhaps there are parts of it that do elude science, but you know, there are these um, quite rich explanatory frameworks for predicting what we think things are going to mean. And that's really, that's the branch of linguistics that I was exposed to in in graduate school. Um, And um, that's the thing I've been really kind of obsessed with is the question, could we do a similar kind of science for um, the other stuff, for for iconic representations, hybrid representations, um, all the stuff that doesn't fit neatly into a sentence-like form. So is that, have, is that kind of giving you a little picture of... Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And 
was what we were just talking about before this an explanation of how the semantics differ between icons and symbols, or is that uh, something different? No, it, it was precisely that. I wasn't okay. using the term semantics, but exactly that. So I was okay. thinking that um, um, the difference between icons and symbols isn't their structure, and it's not the kind of meanings they express. It's actually the semantics, the rules that connect signs to meanings. Um, okay. And that you could actually learn a surprising amount by trying to state the semantics explicitly. Um, what I found was when people think about language, um, they, you know, ever since Frege and, and before, but typified by Frege, there's there's a sense that, oh, yeah, we could actually get really concrete about this in the case of language. Like we could try to say what each part of a sentence means. And then when people thought about iconic representations, they thought, uh, no, there's not going to be anything systematic like that, or it's going to be too vague, or this is all mush. Um, um, I once had, uh, I once told Jerry Fodor that I was working on the semantics of pictures and his response was why the hell would you want to do that <laughs> so i think that that in a way is a common response and um but i think really there's no there's a there's many putative reasons why you m might not want to do that but i don't think there's any good reasons mm -hmm. uh, and we interpret icons as readily and quickly and systematically as we interpret sentences. So presumably there's some kind of rule governed operation of cognition going on there. We should be able to understand it. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that at least that doesn't give you a semantics, but it kind of throws down the gauntlet. Like we should, we should be able to um, try to identify one. And what then so to use your word before you, you referenced what the semanticist would do in a linguistics department, what are the, the issues in like this paper that we've just been discussing that distinguish it as a philosophical paper so that the, it wouldn't be the semanticist writing this, or it wouldn't be the cognitive scientist, or is, is this a case where it's just really a, a blurring of three fields and, and either of them could have written it? I think that in principle, uh, any, anyone from any of those three fields might've written the paper. Okay. Um, but as a matter of fact, or, you know, as, as a matter of practice, um, linguistics tends to be primarily engaged with um, making sense of very rich bodies of evidence and um, like taking particular cases, particular languages, or usually much more specific than that, particular sets of constructions and trying to identify like what the rules are within them. And so just, it's natural when you're in that um, frame of knowledge production, 
not to be stepping back and thinking like, well, how does what I'm doing here compare to what I might be doing over here with non-linguistic representations or with animal signaling um, um, or with mental representation? You know, the, the, the scope of the questions is a little bit too broad to make progress in the way that a linguist or a computer scientist would be satisfied with. And so um, to me, this is like one of the beautiful things about philosophy is that you can do exactly that and you could make progress at a slightly more programmatic level. Consequently, like the examples in the paper are all really simplified versions. Like I, instead of language, I use predicate logic. And even when it comes to diagrams, um, if I were a, a empirical scientist of diagrams, I'd be interested in all the rich uh, distinctions of, and details that come into human use. Instead, I use like a really pared down, simplified form of Euler diagrams, um, likewise for pictures. So I would love there to be something like linguistics for diagrams and something like linguistics for pictures. Um, and I think you get little bits of something like this in art history where there's like a sensitivity to the uh, real rich detail of human use. Um, with my philosopher hat on, I was thinking those details aren't what's most salient in terms of making big picture comparisons. So um, let's use some toy examples. Um, so I, I think it, it, that it's in that respect that this is distinctively philosophical. Um, okay. But that's a little different from saying it's not that the conclusions are particularly metaphysical, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd, I'd like at this point to shift gears a little bit. Sure, and yeah. you you taught a course with Sam Cumming, your colleague at UCLA, on visual narrative. Yeah. And was this uh, a philosophy course or a film studies course, or did people come from all over the the school? Uh, it was in philosophy. I mean, I think you're picking up on a theme here, which is I've <laughs> kind of, um, I've deliberately gone about not caring about that distinction too much, mm -hmm. um, whether it's from philosophy into film theory or philosophy into linguistics or philosophy into cognitive science. Um, again, I, I think it's one of the special like all the other fields are, are, have their subject matters. And you, if you work within those fields, you have to make progress on those subject matters. And philosophy doesn't have like a well-articulated subject matter. Um, and I think if you're outside philosophy, that that's the kind of thing people criticize philosophy for, but I think it's their virtue. Like it means that you can range yeah. um, easily between the fields and kind of pick up insights where you want. So, to the right. hand, like, um, it was a class that, um, well, with our distinctive philosophical approach, tried to look at, I guess, the cognitive science of, of a narrative interpretation for visual narratives. So, you know, yeah. what, what is it that allows us to understand c comics and film? Right. And so you've written that narrative film is governed by norms of spatial coherence. Okay. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
here's a maybe the easiest <laughs> way to 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 make sense of that claim is to think um how how dramatically how it could have been otherwise in a dramatic fashion sure um so suppose you watch a film um you know in the first clip you well let's let's imagine a um a film unlike the one that's in front of us now which is you know two side by side images let's mm -hmm. imagine like a traditional film where you, first we have a shot of robinson talking then there's a cut and there's a shot of gabe talking and there's a cut shot of robinson talking uh, you know a dialogue um and this style of editing is called shot reverse shot editing um so the way you if you if you saw such a film you would in you would make some assumptions so you'd think like oh a they're talking to each other um so they're in a conversation and so that's a kind of um social relationship between the people who are represented but you'd also typically infer a spatial relationship you think well, they're they're actually in the same space and they're looking at each other um so you know here's one character here's the other character and in your kind of mental recreation they're like sitting here talking to each other but if you look at just the visual record itself it doesn't force that upon you so it could have been that all the shots of this character were taking place you know in one on the moon and all yeah. the shots of this character were taking place on Alpha Century. And also, they weren't just separated by space, perhaps they were separated by thousands of years. Yeah. Um, and so it could be completely disjoint spatially and temporally. Um, and yet, when we watch these things, we just, you know, yeah. even we if automatically fuse them together in space and time. Even if I saw a film where, like the one you described, where you were on the moon or something and i was in uh, medieval like uh, sitting on a throne or something i'm sure that my brain would still piece them together and somehow fight with me to interpret this as somehow a coherent whole absolutely and you see that yeah. in some you know you see this in in um filmmakers kind of exploit this like sometimes just for effect they'll have that that like really strong contrast and as long as you sort of set up your cues right you still think they're connected um just like your example is very you know really uh, I, another example is uh like in a spy movie somebody has like an earpiece and somebody's in like a, another room there in, in like the car or whatever the observant car and we know as like the audience that these were probably filmed separately by like weeks. Yes. Uh, it's not like they just go, <laughs> it's like actually happening in real time, but we're unable to, to like that, that just doesn't even enter our mind. We're totally involved in the pretense and we interpret it as happening synchronously. Absolutely. I mean, the, so the, like the thought experiment I started with, as you're putting out, it isn't really a thought experiment because in the film studio, <laughs> like the, this stitching together is something that happens at the final moments, like in editing and in your watching, but in production, um, things could be separated by months and in different settings. And, mm -hmm. um, this is what among the, uh, me and Sam and Rory, we always refer to this as the magic of cinema. Um, the magic of cinema is, you know, it all feels like it was all together, but in fact, yeah. it needn't have been created that way.
Um, well, another a piece of jargon that I wanted some clarification on is, and again, I'm going to quote you. So sure. what does it mean to say that film spaces take the form of abstract spatial graphs? Uh, okay. Also, your cat was doing like a really was trying to engage with the green screen behind you. So that was yeah, a- I don't know. Maybe that maybe that'll play out interestingly in the in the final product. Um, okay, so this is um, is a a kind of part of a speculation um, I have about how this kind of spatial coherence is achieved, um, and I think you could break down the question of how film narrative is understood into the in two components. One is, are there rules that tell us how we should connect things? So like if we see one shot and one shot, we think like, oh, there's some kind of rule of time they should be next to each other, some kind of rule of space they should be proximal. And um, we can get a lot more precise and interesting than just proximal. There's all kinds of uh, rich spatial rules that are work in film. Another question is, what does it leave you, the audience member, with at the end of all that? So is there some kind of um, mental representation of a space that gets built up, or are you just kind of left with a bunch of pairwise connected scenes? And um, my thought is, it's not just a bunch of pairwise connected scenes. You you. After watching a movie, you're left with something like, well, let's not say a movie, but just a scene. You're left with something like a mental map, broadly of the same kind you would have if you walked around a building. Like, you you know, you got to a new building, you walk in, you look in one classroom. I've been doing this on, you know, I'm on a campus that I'm unfamiliar with. You walk down the hall, look in another classroom, and then you turn around, you leave the room, the building, and you're able to leave because you've generated a little mental map of the space. Those mental maps aren't perfectly metrical in the sense that you don't always record exactly how far everything is from one another. So, you know, in the mathematician sense of a metric, there isn't really um, a precise distance between all of the points. It's a little bit more like some kind of graph where I think, well, there was this point, and I know that the next one was a straight line from there, and the next one was a turn and a straight line from there. I don't know exactly how long those straight lines are. And it, it's it's that kind of graph that I imagine you're also building up in film. So um, at least I shouldn't say film in general, but when film feels coherent and concrete and satisfying spatially, that's the kind of mental map you're, you're developing. It's like one of these graphs, Hmm. Um, but the, the violations of this are almost as interesting as the um, conformity to it. So, um, one of my, um, I guess, guilty pleasures, I really love the, the born sequence of films. Yeah. I like them too. Uh, Not the one with Jeremy Renner so much, but the ones with, with Matt Damon are all great. Yeah, I mean, I think this is like, um, um, as as like uh, millennial men, we probably really feel like a lot of connection with those films, and they, they speak to, <laughs> they like explore masculinity in a distinctive way. Um, but uh, so I've watched them dozens of times, and they oh wow, 
but they <laughs> have um they're sometimes credited or blamed with starting a trend in filmmaking that disrupted this kind of coherent sense of space in film. Um, Cause if you recall, there's this very distinctive kind of editing where the shots are cut very quickly. The, yeah. and the thing moves around, there's these fight scenes where it's just like yeah, yeah. limbs and blurs and you don't really know what's happening. I didn't know that that was kind of where it started. Or, well, where it became popularized, at least. Yeah, I think it became popularized. And then movies after that just became more and more extreme. And so you can look at, like, these... Uh, if you search terms like, why do action movies... Why do action scenes suck so much? Then you'll find <laughs> all these YouTube commentators giving, like, great examples of movies that you probably wouldn't normally watch because they're, like, B, B-grade movies, but are just completely chaotic. Um, and there's, and so I think these like chaotic spatial film, the, these chaotic scenes. So, so let me say that again, these spatially chaotic scenes and films are cases where you're not able to build up this nice mental graph where you've got like, you know, one action, another action, but you, you know, they're just kind of being put in a pile together, like an unordered set, um, with no, mm -hmm. like particular structure being imposed upon them. Right. And obviously in the, in the Bourne series that's done, like you mentioned, to achieve that precisely that effect. But it's interesting, though, that uh, presumably if you're in one of these action sequences, that's exactly what it is like. It's very discombobulating, which I think is probably why that technique uh, has been so successful. It yeah, engrosses I you in the movie in that sense. A hundred percent. And it's very effective in the Bourne movies and um, in some of the subsequent kind of, you know, adoptions of that technique, not always as successful. Sometimes it just feels like, you know, you're overwhelmed with by the blur of the, of the editing style. Mm -hmm. Are there any other techniques? So I, one thing that you meant, you mentioned like the 180 degree rule um, POV editing that, contribute to spatial coherence because it's kind of interesting to hear these these like actual particular cases from filmmaking uh yeah so i think there's lots of cases so um I what say, is the 180 degree rule yeah uh, let me preface by saying um this is all work that i did that's kind of ongoing work with sam Cumming and rory kelly at ucla and okay we have uh we think that there's like a system of rules, so a whole kind of suite of rules that help you maintain, they fill in the gaps that films don't themselves fill. So like the case I was giving of the two people and we stitch those together, there's a kind of rule that helps you stitch. Um, so the most famous case is exactly the one you're mentioning, the 180 rule. Um, so um, um, the... 180 rule says that screen direction shouldn't change between shots. So, um, you know, I'm thinking there's the scene towards the end of Terminator 2. I'll again, show my millennial. One of my all-time favorites. My, my millennial credentials. <laughs> my, uh, my best friend's dad showed it to us at a birthday party when we were five years old, and it caused some trouble oh. with, the, uh, with the, the parents. We also watched Enter the Dragon and... I think there's a scene in that where some naked women are walking on like Bruce Lee's back, giving him a massage. And that was 
our first encounter for all of us with naked women. So that forever <laughs> remains etched in my, my memory. I, but, I, sorry, what's the scene in Terminator 2? I think I'm not, I'm okay with a child being exposed to nudity, but I probably would not want to show them Terminator 2 until they're a little bit older than five years old. But yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. You perhaps remember the scene towards the end. There's Sarah Connor is, uh, chasing um terminator uh t1000 rather and um you know trying to hunt him down and so they're they're in some factory and so you've yeah, got yeah. um shots where you you know first you see from one perspective you see sarah connor kind of facing um facing screen left um and then in the next shot you see t1000 facing screen right so we could cartoon them like sort of like this yeah um but there's stretches of the film where they don't appear in the same shot um and yet we are pretty reliable in getting their spatial relation proper so we think like okay sarah connor faces this way we don't think that t1000 is facing away from her yeah or is facing at like a right angle to her we think that t1000 is facing her and uh -huh the we, you can derive that fact from the shots plus the 180 rule because the 180 rule says you know if if someone is facing this way in this shot and someone's facing this way in this shot screen direction has to be the same in both of those so the only way to put them together is like this hmm. um and so it, it kind of um one way that it's operationalized for filmmakers is you imagine there's a line of action between two characters or the trajectory of a bullet or a car and the camera always has to stay on the same side of that of that action um and th this is just like one of many such rules so yeah I, oh, um, oh i'm thinking of if there's another case that i can give that's relatively straightforward so uh, so we discovered a rule i mean it's rare that philosophers get to say they discovered <laughs> things yeah especially like you know empirical things but I, but we did discover a rule so um perhaps you can visualize this because i can't i don't have a board to describe it here sure. um um imagine you see and I'll, I'll give a little kind of diagram of it so overhead shot of a cue ball and a pool stick. Okay. You're seeing it from above. And you mm -hmm. see the, the person wind up the cue stick, hit the cue ball, and the ball travels off screen like that. Yeah. Okay. Now the next shot you see is um, a target um, pool ball. And now we could ask audience, uh, which direction is the, is the cue ball going to come from? And people generally say it's going to come like this. Yeah. the same direct for people who aren't audio, who are audio only coming yeah. in the same direction from which you see in the original shot, the, the, the cue stick, the cue and the ball going. Right. Now you can't get that by 180 degree alone because the 180 degree rule says that screen direction is preserved. So that's compatible with it coming from the same direction or a whole range of um, directions that are, have the same right to left orientation, but not the same. Yeah. Angle. So in certain kinds of cases, 
um, we expect this really tight, coherent spatial coherence between the two shots that the angle of action on the screen has to be perfectly preserved across two shots. Um, mm -hmm. So we call this the T constraint because the way you operationalize that constraint is a requirement that the camera translate between the two shots, but not rotate. So it's a translation constraint. Um, and so I think you start getting the feeling like, okay, there's a, this translation constraint, there's this, uh, screen direction constraint. Um, there's, um, uh, what we've sometimes called a gravity constraint, which is just the assumption that what's up and down in the, in the visual space of the shot corresponds to what's up and down relative to gravity. Um, and you know, you're occasionally this is violated. Like you'll have a Spider-Man will be upside down and you'll see the world from his upside down perspective. But in general, when we see a scene without clear cues, we just assume that the bottom of the screen is closer to the source of gravity and yeah. the top of the screen is above it. Mm -hmm. um, so you can kind of start um, putting these things together. Have you seen Hardcore Henry? I have not, no. Do you know the movie? No, 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 I don't. That sounds like... Uh, movie. Yeah, it's not like a great movie or anything, but it's from 2016 and it's all shot from behind somebody's eyes the entire time. Cause he's like a, a cyborg, but you, you wrote, you wrote also about POV editing yeah. and where that in a way eliminates a lot of the need for these sort of rules that you've discussed. Uh, but so how does it contribute to spatial coherence? Is it sort of just like de facto spatial co coherence because it's already the way we see the world? Well, so I think POV is yet another kind of rule. Oh, okay. Um, so you might, you know, it, it, perhaps in Hardcore Henry, there's, it's all POV, but most films blend POV with other things. So you might have some shots that are 180 degree related and some that are related by some other constraints, and then you'll switch into POV. Yeah. So there's definitely got to be transition rules. Yeah. And there's subtle cues of POV. Um, so you think like, uh, a shaky camera, um, heavy breathing, heavy breathing, heart beating, um, sometimes like masking on the actual screen, um, like you get in predator. Yeah. Those, these are all like, you know, cues that we're now in POV land. Predator is a good one. Um, or a terminator for that matter. Yeah. Um, and POV itself is, uh, is not um completely straightforward so there are there's the most kind of like um there's the most literal kinds of pov like the one where you are you know inside predator's eyes and seeing the world through his x-ray vision or what's mm -hmm. it heat sensing thermal vision. vision yeah thermal vision yeah um but often you'll get a shot that, you know, what are called over the shoulder shots. So they're just a couple inches off the person's viewpoint, but we sort of take it that what the camera sees, they also see. Yeah. Um, and if the, if, if the camera pans up and see something, we infer that their head also went up and saw yeah. that. Um, yeah. And, I can see that definitely yeah. in a lot of horror movies, like you're stalking down the hall and then something jumps out, you know? Um, and POV is just, you know, it's a fascinating, it's like, you're given the problem of how, 
given a visual media and you don't have words like thinks and sees and believes, how do you get into someone's mind and how do you, how do you give the, um, the contents of someone's mind? And one way is to do it the way a play does it. You show their face and have them say things, but POV is sort of a distinctively visual strategy where now you assume the position they're in and show what they see. Yeah. Huh. Okay. One, one last technique that you mentioned is site link. Yeah. I was about to mention site link. Yeah. Oh, great. What's it, which, what is it? So, uh, I mean, we're really getting into the weeds here, which I love this stuff. Um, yeah, no, these are great weeds to be in. Um, happy to be in these weeds. Site link is, um, I actually saw just a, a wonderful example of Sidelink in our, the, the recent James, uh, what's his name? James Patterson in Batman. That's his name. Like, yeah. James uh, Patterson. Yeah. Pattinson. I'll Pat check. Yeah. That's, now, now I don't know. James Pattinson. No, Robert, <laughs> Robert Pattinson. Pattinson. Yeah. Okay. Now I can give this anecdote, but now I've got his name here. So handsome fellow. Absolutely. Twilight thing. So, mm -hmm. um, um, here's how we think about POV. So in POV, you, um, the camera occupies the position that the person would occupy. Um, so you, you, you interpret the camera as being co-located with their eyes or the center of their eyes and being oriented along their line of vision. Um, but there's another way to show what someone's looking at, which is you could take the thing that they're looking at and show it from a different angle. So, um, uh, you know, here's the, I guess I shouldn't do a visual demonstration here. If, if, um, a character is looking at an apple and I want to reveal what they see, I could reveal it by showing the apple from the position of their head, that would be POV, or I could reveal it from some other angle. I could, you know, have the camera next to the apple and that would be a sight link because then the line of sight from the camera intersects the person's line of sight, but it doesn't occupy their line of sight. Mm -hmm. So, um, there's a scene early in Batman where, um, uh, Pattinson as Batman, as Batman looks down at the ground with a kind of sharp gesture, which is a classic cue of some kind of viewpoint. Um, but then the next shot is not from his viewpoint way up looking down at the ground. It's actually a low shot on the ground looking at a letter that's on the ground. And so it's clearly revealing what he's looking at, but not revealing it from his perspective. So that would be an example of sight link. Um, and so you see here, you've got this similar, like actually number of different options for kind of interpretive rules that are being used to connect the shots together. And, um, as you watch and you get these like successive shots, you sort of are having to dynamically select, um, which rule you think the filmmaker intended you to engage in order to correctly interpret things. Well, I one thing I'm getting a kick out of here is all the jargon. Okay. And <laughs> so site length 180 rule, 
yeah. of POV editing. How does this relate to what you, you've referred to as incremental viewpoint grounding? Oh, yeah. Um, let me just say in the jargon, I mean, I, it's, it's a sort of, it's unavoidable and a kind of fun part of working with filmmakers is like film, not so much film theory, but film production is just rich with jargon because it's a, yeah. you know, a whole field and they have to get something really practical done. It's a bit like talking to people who are in the military where there's just jargon for every like kind of tape and, um, and piece of gear. So, well, something though that's nice about this jargon is that it connects to something concrete. Whereas a lot of philosophical jargon is really ambiguous and not understood. And it's frustrating rather than, Oh, like this is neat. <laughs> right. It's a bit fun. Um, so, um, incremental viewpoint grounding, perhaps that's the bad kind of jargon, but, um, that is a way of describing the dynamics of interpretation. So I, of film interpretation. So we think that, um, uh, first of all, film interpretation is incremental. You don't sit there, watch the entire film and then know what it means. Um, the way you might imagine like scanning the whole sentence and then putting together its meaning. Mm -hmm. Instead, like you first interpret like the first scene, then you interpret the next scene, then you interpret the next scene and you build up a kind of model of the action incrementally. Um, so that's the incremental part. And viewpoint grounding is the idea that with each, like every shot in a film comes with a viewpoint um, and not a viewpoint as in there's a character there, but the camera implicitly describes a perspective point. And I think one of the major themes in our work is even though you're not aware of it, um, every, at every shot, you're trying to seek out what are the relations between the viewpoint of the current shot and the viewpoints of previous shots. Um, in fact, like all the rules we've been talking about, POV, 180 rule, T constraint, gravity constraint, these are actually viewpoint constraints. So they're constraints that allow you to connect the current viewpoint to previous viewpoints. Um, and so we think there, as you're watching, there's a kind of cognitive pressure to figure out how the current viewpoint um, sort of sits spatially among the established viewpoints. And that's the grounding. So you try to ground the current viewpoint in old ones. Um, and it, it kind of suggests, you know, when we, I think when we think about film traditionally, we imagine it again, like a play, like that the main um, drivers of the action are the characters and the um, interactions, the actions that are on screen. And I think the lesson of our research is there's this other character, there's this hidden character, which is viewpoint and the, huh. the filmmakers, you know, somewhat explicitly, somewhat implicitly are really masters of managing viewpoint and managing its motion and connections. And uh, we, as you know, film consumers have all learned all of these rules and are, are, completely smooth at assimilating new viewpoints as they come along. Oh, very neat. Now, okay. So we've gotten a lot of examples of sp spatial coherence. I yeah. think maybe I'm wrong that 
uh, the Bourne movies were one example of not great spatial coherence, purposively of, or purposefully. Yeah. Purposive sounds sounds too fancy, so I'll just say purposefully. Um, are there any other examples of favorite scenes or movies that you just have on the top of your head where they're spatially incoherent scenes? I mean, I just watched uh, Everything Everywhere all at once, and there was a whole lot of incoherence in that movie. But I'm not sure if, if there's anything easy to pick out in, in this sense of space of incoherence. Um, no, I, I mean, I love that movie so much. It, I, I haven't done detailed kind of shot by shot um, analysis with that movie, but I think one of the things that's distinctive there is that they have a unusual blend of narrative incoherence with spatial coherence. Um, so you'll have these scenes where um, like the background and setting changes really rapidly in a way that defies narrative coherence and yet you kind of realize that there's these two characters like talking to each other or fighting or doing some spatial interaction so they they kind of um put some of the conventions of films at cross purposes um but i think 180 degree is violated often for effect so i think there's all kinds of classic cases of this um um, do I have a favorite example? I mean, there's a famous example from um, uh, The Shining where um, Jack Nicholson's character is in that like creepy bathroom with the black and white tiles and he's talking to the butler. And then the in the middle of the conversation, they break the 180 rule. Um, so they like reverse positions. And if you're a casual viewer, you don't really notice that something odd has happened, but you do get a sense of unease. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's often how violating rules um, works. Sort of like it gives it kind of puts you on on edge a little bit. Um, yeah, the one thing that the, the, scenes, yeah. this is reminding me of. Uh, well, I don't have any particular examples, but how a great poet uh, or uh, a writer who really knows the techniques really well will purposefully make a mistake. So like in a sonnet, in a Shakespearean sonnet or something, they might leave one syllable out of a line or neglect to put a rhyme in there because it's so expected that the effect on the audience is going to be very dramatic, even if they're not even aware what happened. So it's, it's, it's very subtle, but very powerful at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, it's for precisely that reason that poetry and really kind of artistic literature is not a very good starting point for studying the rules of language. Because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, once you understand the rules of language, it can be very illuminating to see what the poet did. But if you're looking for evidence, it won't, you know, people are breaking the rules all the time. That's not a good example of the rules. And mm -hmm. I think it kind of speaks to all the cases that we've been talking about with film. So if in film studies, people are, you know, tend to be more interested in artistic films and um, avant-garde film. And it, that's obviously incredibly interesting from a, you know, humanist perspective. But if you're trying to figure out, well, what are the kind of cognitive rules people use to guide interpretation? 
you really have to start with mainstream film, like cases of film where Michael Bay. Yeah, exactly. Like mm-hmm. someone who, you know, Steven Spielberg, people who really understand the rules and give them and give conformity to the rules to people and leave people with very solid senses of what the narrative was. Um, there's a, I have sometimes have a little tension with my co-authors because uh, they're more interested in um, some of these more artistic uses of film, which I think are also very interesting. But for these reasons, um, we inevitably end up gravitating back towards the bread and butter kind of stuff. And we've constructed our own examples and our own examples are like a- as far from avant-garde as you could get just very simple actions, you know, someone hitting a pool ball or moving a chess piece. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, two two it's, movies that you that you touched on in the course that I've seen, uh, The Irishman and The Last of the Mohicans, the latter of which I, I much preferred to The Irishman. I'm sorry if The Irishman is one of your favorites. No, but, <laughs> okay, do you recall what was philosophically or cinematographically uh, compelling about those two movies or why you included them? There was a very specific reason in each case. It had to do with a specific cut at a specific moment. And um, I think um, in the case of The Irishman, it was the edit where he says, I paint houses, and then it cuts to someone's blood being spattered on the wall of a house. And then it cuts okay. back to the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we're thinking, well, what, there's a clear, there's a lot of information that's conveyed in that. Yeah. Um, And so we're trying to unpack um, what that was, some kind of like uh, illustration relation um, to kind of give context to what he said. Mm -hmm. Um, In the case of The Last of the Mohicans, I don't remember crisply, but I believe this is an example we got from Rory. And um, I think there's a, um fight scene where you see someone throwing a spear or shooting a bow and then uh you see the same action again so they they run time backwards by a little jolt um and so it's and it um feels pretty natural but it's a very unusual technique is to like show the same action twice something you see in like John Woo movies and uh yeah Beyond that, I can't remember the details, but th- I believe that's why. Um, so, as you can see, these were not grand cinematic themes we were extracting. They were like yeah, minutiae. Yeah. Okay. Well, my, my last film-related thing that I was interested in is what? Why does this and why does this? What I was going to say is why does this work count as work in semantics and pragmatics? And I think you you sort of hinted without saying it the semantic portion when you talked about the what is illustrated by this cut in the Irishman of I paint houses juxtaposed with the blood splatter, but more more broadly I guess what is the relationship between everything we've been talking about and semantics first and then we'll get to pragmatics. Yeah, um, well I think you could think of watching a film as interpretive process analogous in reading a sentence or looking at a picture. And um, there's a, you know, a question like how do, you know, if you want to put it in the most abstract way, like how do you map um, 
the reel of a film onto the content it expresses. Um, and some of that mapping, I think, is hard to articulate, but very direct. It's like the mapping that all visual representations have. So it's just like, you know, the this shot showed these events happening. And so we think, okay, that whatever that showing relation is, is how, how the film works. But um, in all of the cuts together, these are, you know, more open-ended and they don't work just by showing. There's all of these rules we've been talking about are really interpretive rules. And so I think what, what I and my co-authors have been trying to argue is that film has a semantics in the sense that there are rules that the interpreter has to know at some level and apply, and they use them to derive the, the meaning of the film. Um, if you, if you were going to teach a computer to interpret movies, eventually we will have computers that watch movies and you weren't going to do it just by like m massive machine learning techniques, which is probably what will happen. Um, then you'd have to teach it these rules because it too would have to know like, well, I saw one shot, I saw another shot. What am I supposed to do with this? Um, so I kind of take this as like, interesting. if the, you know, all the stuff we've been talking about is like, there's this idea of a science of meaning that started in linguistics. Well, could we extend science of meaning to diagrams? Um, yeah, in fact, people here at Stanford demonstrated that you could have really precise semantics for diagrams. Could we have semantics for pictures? Well, maybe there's some stuff we can say there. Could you have semantics for film? Um, and like e each of these are kind of trying to expand the ambit of semantic analysis. And what does pragmatics mean in, in this context or even generally? Um, it's a bit of a contested term, <laughs> but I think broadly it means um, the aspect of interpretation that is governed by general intelligence or general rationality. Um, and um, rules kind of get you only, only get you so far. Um, and at some point you have to appeal to um, world knowledge. Like you think, well, I'm seeing two people um, and they're both speaking. Um, I can tell they're talking to each other. It's a bit of world knowledge that people generally face each other instead of facing away from each other. Um, and so that, that's, that might be a bit of pragmatic reasoning or, um, um, I see a, a cop running and I see a burglar running and pragmatics tells me that the cop is chasing the burglar and not the other way around. Um, and it's not like there's some hard coded re, uh, rule I'm following there. I'm kind of consulting my accumulated world knowledge about police and my accumulated world knowledge, or maybe narrative knowledge about, um, burglars and putting them together in a way that is, you know, satisfies general intelligence. Um, and I think this in a way is the hardest part of, uh, modeling interpretation. Like the rules are great for people who like to do pencil and paper analysis, like philosophers and linguists like to do, um, modeling general intelligence. Now we've, now we need like 
you know, probabilistic reasoning and giant databases of knowledge. Um, and that, that's going to be a, like a sort of unavoidable aspect of communication. Okay. Well, the last little thing that I wanted to, to touch on before I release you, uh, is you mentioned to me once that you often try to teach understanding comics by Scott McCloud in your courses. And I think I, maybe I brought him up because I read that book when I was a kid, but I know I just totally loved it. And one thing that I remember jumping out at me and this brought it back when you mentioned, when we talked a bit about stylized pictures a bit earlier yeah. is that it's impossible to look at a smiley face, even though it's just like a squiggle and a couple of dots on a piece of paper. It's impossible to just see that in front of you and not see a smiley face. <laughs> and I'm wondering what, since, since I haven't read it for a while, uh, well, one, maybe you could explain, or maybe you don't have that on hand, what that, is, what that really says about our brain and the semantics of, of these, in this case, I guess you'd probably, you'd call it an icon, yeah. uh, what it says about our brain, but also if there's, there's any other topics in that book that really stick out at you that make you want to teach aspects of it. Oh, I see. Um, I guess I love the book because I just find that he has a really intuitive, um, and illuminating way of thinking about n visual narrative that is, has just the right amount of content and just the right amount of absence of theory. So it's not a, you get the feeling that it's not someone who's like sat around re reading lots of theory books. It's rather someone who's sat around reading lots of comics and yeah. trying to figure out what patterns you see. And that's exactly the way I would like to approach these things. And, um, he identifies these like, you know, really interesting relations of space, relations of time, relations of narrative. Um, and, um, I don't think that he's exactly right in the details, but I don't really care. That's not what I'm trying to convey when I assign it. I was like, you know, this is like the beginning of a theory and he sort of creates it out of nowhere and with just incredibly vivid examples, um, far more vivid than come out of the linguistics literature. So that's why I love McLeod. Um, as far as, um, the smiley face. I'm not sure I have too much to say on that. I mean, it's, um, you know, there's a part of the perceptual system that is dedicated to recognizing faces mm -hmm. and it is, um, highly automatic, <laughs> like much of the perceptual system. And so, um, if you put two dots in a line in the right kind of configuration, you have no, no option, but to kind of, uh, see a face there. Um, yeah, and this actually, I mean, uh, I recently uh, worked on a project with um, a few linguists and a philosopher on emojis. Uh, yeah, yeah, I saw about that. Making uh, a semantics for emojis, where what was it they like connect to some element in the text? There's sort of yeah. like a back and forth between them. They're like a commentary on the text, but but in a way, you know aside from the kind of discourse role they play, which is what we were studying, like the emoji itself, like 
exploits the thing you're bringing up. Like, it's just like this, in some ways it should be meaningless, like little yellow dot with really abstract stylized marks on it. Um, and yet that's like one of the main ways of conveying emotions in, in modern communication. Um, and we, we look at those and the emotions jump off the pitch. Um, and in a way, I, I wonder if, um, I mean, it's a topic for another time, but I, I think faces themselves are just completely fascinating. And, um, in some ways, like emojis are drawings of faces. Um, but faces themselves are representations. Um, they're like representations of emotional states. And we ourselves make little diagrams on this kind of like patch of flesh that we have here um, by like modulating the positions of our eyebrows and our mouths and, um, you know, the muscles around our eyes and convey a tremendous amount of information about what's going on inside. Um, so uh, sometime when I have more time, I would love to study faces. I just feel like that's the next frontier for me <laughs> in thinking about in, in studying non-linguistic semantics is getting a better grip on, on what kind of, uh, what kind of interpretation is going on with faces. Okay. Well, now really the last question, since we do, at least based on this conversation, seem to have overlapping taste in movies. Yeah. What was your favorite movie of 2022? Uh, everything everywhere. Absolutely. Okay. That, that, that's an easy one, actually. I, most really? years it wouldn't be easy, but for me, that was, that was decisive. Hmm. Um, I think this is 2022, but mine even though there, I had some serious problems with it. Uh, mine was the North man. You know, I, I, I skipped it because it just sounded so brutal and I, yeah. wasn't, I wasn't sure I was ready to subject myself to that, but, um, it sounds like it's a good movie. I, I should, I should. It's definitely a good movie. It has some imperfections, but it's a good movie. So if you do get around to seeing it, we should talk about it. Okay, great. <laughs> All right. Nice. Well, Thanks, Gabe. This this was really this was really awesome. I, this is one of the first uh, philosophy of mind podcasts that I've done. So uh, it was a great introduction to what's going on on the representation side of things. Oh, uh, Robinson, I really appreciate it. I love this whole project. It was super fun. We kind of drifted away from philosophy of mind and to film and things, but um, that's where I love to do. So I, I had a lot of fun. Hold on, geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.